Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super duper excited for this week's show. It's my favorite show to do every year. Yes, even in 2020. It is our favorite movies of the year, which means I am joined, as always, for this annual podcast by JB. Top 10. It's the top 10. It's the top 10 of the year. And Adam Risky. My list will never challenge you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we did manage to make top ten lists this year, and so we'll be counting them down on this episode. I have a lot of favorite episodes that we do every year, but this one is always the most enjoyable to uh, to record. Not always the most enjoyable to do research for because I'm always cramming at the end of the year between voting and trying to do this show. I'm trying to see all of the movies from the last year and it starts to feel a lot like work. So Adam and I have been texting that we're so excited to be able to just watch old movies and whatever we want once this show is locked and recorded. Yeah. I watched uh, Flatliners as my first movie of 2021 and it was it was music to my eyeballs. I loved it. <laughs> Even that was for another podcast, though, right? That was, yeah, yeah that was. Um, and then I also watched uh, The Irishman, and uh, it was, yeah, it, that's better than anything on any of our list this year. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree I recently, with that. <laughs> I recently rewatched that when it finally came out, Criterion, and um, I'd seen it in a movie theater, and I had seen it on did I see it on, I guess, streaming? Um, but the Criterion disc is one of the loveliest discs I've ever seen. Talk about something that um, is true to the author's vision, because it, it's really, really beautiful to look at. Even if you say, oh, I've seen it, the Criterion disc is worth picking up. I got Erica the Criterion disc for Christmas, and so we watched it because neither of us had seen it. We never watched it when it hit Netflix, so neither of us had seen it since we went to see it at the theater last year, like last November. And it's so good, and it's so rewatchable, and it, when it was over, I was like, oh, you know what I feel like watching? Hoffa, directed by Danny DeVito. Because I remember loving that movie when I saw it uh, as a young man, even though I didn't understand what Teamsters were. And so we watched it, and it was not as good as I remember. I would agree. That was my reaction as well. Um, I'm always conflicted because I certainly don't mean to drag politics into this joyful end-of-the-year podcast, but I've always been a strong union supporter. I think while the unions got involved in some things that were unsavory, I think by and large unions – are what gave us the middle class and the five-day work week and pensions and things. And so I watch uh, The Irishman, and I have the same opinion of Al Pacino as De Niro's daughter. I've always regarded him as a hero. A hero who loves ice cream. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I love that there's, uh, there's little lawn signs here in, in our neighborhood that say Proud Union Home. Yeah. And I love seeing that. Uh, so for Al Pacino, it was a rocky room. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to count down our 10 favorite movies of 2020. 
Um, make sure you're visiting the website all week long because all of our other contributors are going to be posting their top 10 lists, uh, which all look very different this year. You know, one of my, not complaints, but one of my concerns every year when we do this best of the year week at the site is, hey, gosh, we're all talking about the exact same movies in a slightly different order. And I think this year will be very different. I don't think we're going to have that exact problem this year. I have a feeling that you are correct. Um, so we're going to do what we always do, which is we'll count down from 10 to 1. And when a film appears higher on someone's list, just go ahead and speak up and say, that's higher on my list, and we will wait uh, to discuss it until it reaches its highest point on any of our lists. So if I say something at number 6 and Adam's got it at number 3, we'll hold off until we get to Adam's number 3. Sound good? Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. Uh, then let's go ahead and get started. Jay Bones, your number 10, sir. My 10, uh, my 10 spot, my number 10 film of the year. After much debate and constantly juggling these things and films going on and films falling off, my number 10 film of the year is Borat, subsequent movie film, a prodigious bribe to American regime, form, make, benefit, once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. That's the last time I say I will say the full title. <laughs> I'll just call it Borat 2. I gave the film a lot of credit. It made me laugh probably more than any other film in a year where it was particularly difficult to make me laugh. Um, I appreciated that he didn't just repeat what worked in the first one. In fact, he admits pretty early on in this one that he... He is too well-known. Everywhere he goes, people are saying, very nice. And so now Borat has to disguise himself. Um, all the things about Tutar, his daughter, I thought were very funny and also very touching. All of the gotcha stuff, including the Rudy Giuliani thing that first brought the film to national attention when it was released. Um, I thought it was great. Yeah, Tutar is kind of the, the find of the year. That actress, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me, unfortunately, but she's so good and keeps Maria up with... Bakalova. Say it one more time. I'm sorry, you were cutting out a little bit. Uh, Maria Bakalova. Thank you so much. Yes. She is so kind of fearless, and it's it's amazing that at such a young age, she's able to keep up with Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, who himself is obviously known for being fearless, and uh, she does not miss a beat, and as you pointed out, JB, manages to infuse the character with a lot of humanity and makes her a very sympathetic and moving character as well. And um, I can think of no better scene. I wrote about it last week, that when Tutar, who has been taught that the vagina has teeth... <laughs> And Tutar discovers that this is a lie and goes before a real Republican woman's group shouting about the, the, the joys of masturbation. I can think of no better scene in movies in 2020. <laughs> I really liked all of the scenes with Tutar and the babysitter where the babysitter was just like, yes, really kind of, you know, it invested in you know the in what she was saying and like yeah. answering like a normal human being and it was such a i don't know it, it it's something that almost 
like shouldn't work but did because she's so nice it like elevated those moments for me but the, yeah i really like the movie it's funny that it could have been very disney movie-ish but that's one of the scenes and admittedly there's more of them in the first movie where you're wondering if this is scripted or improvised yeah mm-hmm. because the babysitter the honestly seems to want to help and without being obnoxious says no that's not the way it is no that's not the way things should be no that's not right um in a very low-key and loving way yeah and speaking of all the the disney scenes the stuff at the beginning with melania trump as the disney princess was some of the funniest things i've <laughs> seen in a movie all year <laughs> It's a it's a really funny movie. I appreciate that he had something very specific that he wanted to satirize, that it wasn't just, hey, here's me pranking people again. Yeah. He yeah. kind of sat down and said, well, what should this movie be about? And it should be about something specific. And then uh, kind of builds a story around that idea and uh, is very successful at it, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Adam, you're number 10. Okay. Um, I'll pretend I will go with. <laughs> well, you should tell people that you are like, you are ranking these you, on the spot. You're kidding. I, just, I no, I can't decide. I mean, like you're I got kidding. the list. Of, no, no, listen, listen, listen. It's not as bad as you think it is. I got the list, <laughs> of 10, and I know, like, with certain blocks, I'm like, okay, this is in some order these are my one two and three in some order these are my seven and eight in some order this so so it's it's very difficult like as patrick said this isn't fun this isn't fun guys <laughs> um so uh, number 10 i'll go with onward which okay. is a movie that not a lot of people really talked about or maybe just didn't like i'm not sure but it came out in that weird period where it was like a week before the shit hit the fan and then it was pulled from theaters and then it was on Disney plus, um, in April. And that's how I saw it. Um, and I remember early in quarantine, I was like, this is exactly what I want to watch right now. It's just this, you know, really sweet, good hearted brother road trip movie. And it kind of like had a lot of uh, remnants of like it was like an animated version of the movie fanboys where it's like these nerdy like fantasy dorks like go on the road and there's a a nice element with them trying to uh get back in touch with you know their their father who's no longer in the picture and then they're trying to use spells to bring him back to have like one last day with him so um this is you know one of the in most people's eyes one of the lesser pixars it's from dan scanlon who also monsters university which is another pixar movie i like more than anyone else Hmm. so maybe his movies just speak to me more but um onward really worked for me and i rewatched it about a a couple weeks ago and it's still just a a really um you know good time so i that is my number 10 he's on your vibe Mm -hmm. i liked onward when i saw it i haven't revisited it i saw it very early in the pandemic and it was one of those things that felt like a little gift because disney plus dropped it on there you know for all the subscribers and it was like oh we were in a pandemic and disney plus is doing something nice for us how neat um and so i watched it with the family and i enjoyed it i remember feeling like and i have this same it's not a criticism 
Something more mild than the word criticism. <laughs> quibble? I don't know. Would um, that be a quibble? Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, concern with another Pixar movie that came out this year that I'm guessing will come up later on the podcast, but that there's some there's all these weird extra story beats that I don't, I, I, I wanted like a cleaner narrative, but I thought the thematic stuff all worked really well. And where onward eventually lands is very, very moving and uh, possibly made me cry. I can't remember, but I might've cried at the end of onward. One of my few pre pandemic movie memories is your son telling me that he really wanted to see it when it came out in theaters. Yeah. That he was looking forward to. It. His dreams were crushed. Yeah, this, this would have been one of those movies that would have been great to see in like a Dolby cinema with like that projection and yeah. everything. So it's, yeah, it's a bummer we didn't get to see it that way. But uh, yeah. Yeah, his, so, his dreams were crushed. Get in line. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I didn't mean it like that. Come on. No, I know. <laughs> 2020 uh, crushed all of our dreams. But like now it's 2021. Everything is great this year. (laughs) I'm looking forward to a new indie film called Vaccine. (laughs) They haven't set a release date yet. Uh, It's a slow rollout. (laughs) (laughs) It's only going to open in the big cities first. You have to see it twice. (laughs) It's a road show. Um, my number 10 is a very small indie drama called Miss Juneteenth, written and directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples. Um, it stars Nicole Bahari as a woman who's a former pageant winner. She's a Texas woman who won a beauty pageant when she was a teenager. And then her life didn't go the way she expected uh, she eventually became uh, a stripper, and now she's working in both a mortuary, mortuary as a like a beautician, and uh, she works a bunch of hours at kind of a shitty restaurant slash bar. And she has a daughter who's about fifteen, who she now wants to enter this pageant uh, and kind of succeed, maybe where her life didn't go in the directions that she thought she, you know, kind of wants better for her daughter. So she's encouraged and her daughter has no interest in joining this pageant. Um, so the movie is kind of about that struggle and it's very well observed. The performance by Nicole Bahari is one of my favorites of the year. Um, again, it's just a very small, quiet movie about people. My list is all over the place this year because I have movies that are big, big swings. And then I have movies that are small and sort of very humanly observed and that's what Miss Juneteenth is. But it's a special movie. Is it on uh, one of the streaming channels or uh, rental on VOD? It's a rental on VOD. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's how I saw it. So um, it may pop up on like Amazon Prime or Hulu soon because I think its rental window is probably, I mean, it came out in June, I want to say. So. Its rental window it has to be coming to an end, and it may pop up on a streaming service. But for right now, it's just a VOD movie. My cool. guess is next Monday. <laughs> Perhaps. That's what, that's what usually happens. After yeah. everybody rents it this week. My number nine film, as I wait for the two gentlemen to tell me, hold on, 
It's higher on my list. My number nine film is Underwater. Yeah, it's higher. Mine too. Okay. Okay. Underwater so at we'll nine. We'll discuss Underwater in a bit. All right. Uh, okay. So my number nine is the other Pixar movie, Soul. Oh, okay. Is that on either of your lists? That is higher on my list. Okay. Oh, we're all the way back around to me. Hold on. I didn't expect that to happen so quickly. All right. <laughs> He's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> My number nine is uh, a movie called 12 Hour Shift, which I'm guessing is not on anybody's list, correct? No. Okay. Uh, written and directed by Bria Grant. It stars Angela Bettis as a drug addict working in a number, in an ER uh, and she's part of an organ-stealing scheme. And uh, one night her idiot cousin loses, I think it's a kidney, that is she's supposed to deliver for this black market dealer, kind of gangster played by Mick Foley of WWE fame. And so the movie is about how do we either find the kidney or how do we acquire a new kidney without anybody knowing. And it's a great little black comedy um, it's great to see Angela Bettis in a movie again. I feel like it had been a number of years since we really saw her in a leading role. And, uh, it's just one of these great movies that keeps turning the screws and making things more and more difficult as new people pop up in the ER, um, as other nurses sort of become wise to what's going on. There's a musical number in the middle of the movie. That's pure joy. It's, uh, it's a great little movie that again is I think available on VOD. Um, I saw it as part of Fantasia Fest out of Canada, but I believe you can rent the movie for five bucks. Thanks. Yeah. I'm always on the lookout for a new Angela Bettis movie, so it'll be cool to see her. So it's like a dark comedy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I now have a list of things on my phone that we need to catch up on because invariably the long, long winter night will involve Jan saying, let's watch a movie. <laughs> Hopefully you'll have some good ones to catch up on. We always have to have recommendations from people we trust, not co-workers bringing me Blu-rays unsolicited <laughs> and telling me I have to watch this. That's the because worst. We, we discussed yeah. that years ago. Yeah. The, um, the polite shuffle. Yeah, I, I finally got a chance to watch that. It was very interesting. Here, take it back. I have a co who four years later is like, hey, did you watch Lion yet? I'm like, I'm probably not going to get to it. <laughs> I just always pretended that I had seen it just so I could give it back. Um, that's wise. I think I can still remember those, and I'm not going to say what the title is, but I don't. I think this might have been 10 years ago or more, and I still haven't seen that movie that's how obstinate i am it's like i will see it in my own time thank you very much <laughs> i have to rewatch rogue one first <laughs> i i did i did and um it was the perfect movie for last night last week i mentioned that with uh theatrical releases not standing in the way i watched a lot more documentaries this year because i love documentaries and my number eight film is one of the best documentaries I saw this year. I wrote a column about it. It's called Zappa, and it's the new documentary from Alex Winter of Bill and Ted fame. And um, 
just when you think you've seen enough show business biographies, winter comes by to stand that narrative um, sort of uh, structure on its head. Um, it's not only great because it celebrates a great person in the arts who's unconventional, but it tells the story in a very unconventional way, too. Um, I had always been on the fence about Frank Zappa. I loved some of his work. Other aspects of his work left me scratching my head. And as I mentioned in my column, Winter's film helped me to understand and appreciate the part of Zappa's work that I heretofore didn't like. But it's a great documentary that everyone should see. I really need to see it. I read your column, and it obviously made me very excited to check it out, and I haven't yet had a chance. Um, and I wish I had, because I knew, based on what you had written in your column, that it would most likely end up on your list, so I wish I could talk about it with some knowledge of the film, but I do want to check it out. I, like you, am not a huge Zappa fan, but I will admit, I, I'll plead ignorance, I don't know most of his music outside of like Valley Girl and a couple other songs. I mostly remember his appearance in the monkeys movie Head. Where That's he has, right, with with the cow. With the cow monkeys is the craziest people. One of the things Alex Winter did well, and he did many things well, is he managed to get some talking heads who were musicians who had played with Zappa, who not only love, live and breathe music but are capable of talking about music to people who are not musical. So there's a woman who was in his band for a number of years and Steve Vai, and both of them come across not only as consummate musical professionals and music lovers, but they're capable of explaining very, very difficult concepts to the layman, which I've always taken as one sign of excellence if you're truly excellent in your field you can talk about it with a nine-year-old yeah <laughs> um zappa is worth watching for the music alone and as i pointed out in my column to go along with the release alex winter sort of put together this montage poster of giant monster movie ads uh, which was then sold through mondo and I bought one. I'm looking at it right now. It has a place of honor in my office. Um, and he signed all of them. So that's a nice little tchotchke from the film. That's cool. Because had... Zappa, was, Zappa was really into big monster movies. Alex Winter had another documentary this year also called Showbiz Kids, I think. Yes. Premiered on HBO. That was also very good. I saw that one. I didn't get a chance to see Zappa. Damn it. You don't automatically think it's the same skill set. Oh, that's the freaked and Bill guy. But uh, Alex Winter is very thoughtful. I follow him now on Twitter, and um, he has a head full of ideas. And again, I just I recommend that, that everyone see Zappa. Even if you think it's not quite your bag, I think you'll like it. He's one of Erica's Twitter crushes. She loves what he tweets. Yeah. Yeah, he's really good on there. He, he, he directed... Um... What was the name of the Napster documentary he directed? Because I've been meaning to go back and watch that. I don't remember the name of it, but I saw it, and it was very good. Yeah, I'm trying okay. to remember the name. It was excellent. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to look it up. I can jump in with it. if. Uh... I guess I'm going to rank my number eight, so this works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he's directed a lot of TV. Downloaded? 
That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Okay. All right. So that brings us around to Adam, your number eight. All right. So I'll go along with the spirit of JB's pick. And uh, I echo what his sentiment was that I watched an inordinate amount of documentaries this year and loved many of them. It was a really good year for documentaries. Um, the one that I liked the most was Jasper Mall, which was um, is is that on either of your lists? It is not because I haven't had a chance to see it yet, even though it is streaming on Amazon Prime. I watched like the first 10 minutes and then had to go to bed and never picked it up again like a dummy. Like a dummy. It's not on, it's not on my list. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, last night, Rob was urging all of us to see it on the Zoom call. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Rob. It's good. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it's directed by Brett Whitcomb and produced by Bradford Thomason and they did the Rock of Fire explosion which all of us really liked from yes. a few years ago. Yeah. Um and this this one is about a dying mall and it's supposed to it's in Jas it's called the Jasper Mall it's in Jasper Alabama and it's meant to represent every dying mall in across the, the world and um the thing that's so great about it is it gets really invested in the human stories of the people who run the different shops that are inside the mall and how difficult it is for them to generate, you know, foot traffic to come into their stores. And there's so many shots just of people just sitting on benches, like blankly staring out into the distance um, inside this mall. And you can really, it really encapsulates how this mall is like not only the thing that ties this community together, but it's probably also the worst thing that could happen to these people because it gives them an excuse to like never move on with a lot of their, you know, hopes and dreams. It's just kind of this limbo building and it's really interesting. And there's a scene where they, um, the, there's a, a manager of the mall. He doesn't, he's, he does all the maintenance and the security for the mall. His name's Mike. And, um, he, he's the guy who's like, he's got such dignity and like, he holds it together and he's this custodian for like all these people's lives, just as much as he is for this building. And, um, he thinks to generate traffic to the mall, he's going to hold like a, like a town fair, like a carnival. Um, so that'll be outside of the mall and it'll draw people to come into the mall to shop. And there's this one scene that I'm probably reading too much into, but I think that it's kind of, I don't know, what stood out to me about it is they show this little girl on a carousel and she's going around on the horse and she's screaming her guts out because she's terrified and she's like, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And her mother's like, no, no, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun. And that's what everybody who works in this mall felt like to me, where it's like, they're trying to convince themselves that like, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. But inside they're screaming because they know that they're, you know, they're, they're kind of destitute in their station in life. So I thought from a human story, it was really great. Boy, this sounds like the official movie of 2020. Yeah. Kind <laughs> of. <laughs> Yikes. But there's a lot of humor in it too. So like I, I painted a kind of dark picture, but um, yeah, there's, there's some, some light moments. There's one where, um, they show like a, a kid go into like an army recruitment station and he's doing these drills 
and he's just like completely out of breath like right away but then there's a girl who's doing the ones at the same time and she's just like gi jane and like completely <laughs> kicking his ass by comparison it's really funny the way that they they frame it in the movie so there's there's some light moments too yeah i would imagine as much coming from the 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 rock fire explosion filmmakers you know yeah mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I definitely need to check it out. Jasper Mall. It's, as, as I said, I. streaming on Amazon Prime, so everybody should see it. Yep. Uh, purely coincidentally, we did not talk about our lists beforehand. We do not share our lists with one another beforehand. My number eight is also a documentary. <laughs> uh, all three of us have documentaries in our number eight spot. I kind of teased this last week when, J-Bones, you brought it up as one of your underrated picks. But my number eight is the documentary Class Action Park, directed by Seth Porges and Chris Charles Scott, about Action Park in New Jersey, the world's most dangerous water park. In spades. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I rewatched it again a couple nights ago just to see, you know, does this belong on my list or not? And I, I'm, I'm very comfortable with putting it here. Uh, I just find it endlessly entertaining the stories that all of the former uh, guests of the park and former employees share of the park. It's just stuff you can't believe. You can't believe what you're hearing, what you're hearing. You can't believe what you're seeing. Um, And then it takes a very sad and tragic turn as they start to talk about, you know, some of the people who literally lost their lives at this park. Uh, and they interview the family of one uh, young man who died at the park. And it's very, very sad. So it's not all fun and games, obviously, you know. Um, but it's just a great story of this this guy who had a dream of a horrible place. And it's <laughs> a dream of sort of capitalism run amok. And, you know, he was hiding money and creating fake uh insurance uh companies so that he could be insured for his dangerous water park and but he really wasn't insured right exactly it was all the whole thing was a scam and it's just so so interesting and as i said uh last week every time chris gethard a comedian is interviewed talking about going to the park it's Money in the bank. I th- just find him endlessly entertaining as he talks about uh, everything that went on at the park. And uh, I think I teased this last week, but there's a they describe a slide that goes in a loop and people yes. are getting cut up on the slide. And so they removed a section of the slide and realized that what was cutting up people as they went down the slide was some teeth that had become embedded on the inside of the slide. And that tells you everything you need to know about action park in New Jersey. Class action park can be subtitled. It was a different time. <laughs> yeah. But... And there is a lot of talk about that. Like it was the eighties and we didn't care. And we were looking, you know, to break the rules and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, there's a lot of, it was the eighties. The filmmakers do such a great job of coordinating found footage and their interviews and just, the way they go about telling the story, it's really, really well put together. Yeah. Yeah. I like how Chris Gethard at the end kind of wraps it up with, it's like, it's the type of place where if you get a couple beers and someone, it's like, oh man, ha ha ha, that place was really messed up. But then you go to your therapist and you're like, no, that place was really messed yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I'm I'm surprised now yeah. because I saw it a while ago that the two things that I most remember was when you jumped off that real high thing into the water. Yeah. How cold the water was. Yeah. Because of where it was coming from, and as I mentioned last week, that place where they would spray you down with the mercurochrome. Yeah, there was a little circle that you had to stand inside, and if you stayed inside the circle, you won a prize, but nobody ever did because it was so painful. It would make you do the dance of pain. (laughs) Wasn't there like a thing, too, where like once you dove in or like you swung from a rope and dove into the big wade pool, like that like these children would just like curse you and yell at you and throw things at you if you didn't do a good job also. Yes, like... people were constantly screaming and calling you pussy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's because it, it was New Jersey like... in the 80s. I mean, it's yeah, it's like the boiler room kids before they found JT Martin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a whole park full of Nikki Cat. Yeah. <laughs> um going <laughs> along with our Going along with our theme of documentaries, this segues perfectly into my number seven choice. It had been so long since I had seen a good one of these. They're normally called essay films. And this one is called Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. And if you want the definitive history of the movie, Mark Kermode has already made that. It's a bonus feature on one of the many Exorcist sets. And it's about 90 minutes and it's, oh, it's everything you'd ever want. This is 90 minutes of William Friedkin sitting in a chair talking about The Exorcist. And it's one of the most fascinating films I've seen all year because Friedkin is such a great raconteur. And The Exorcist is just an excuse to get him talking because the film is actually about a number of things. And The Exorcist is only one of those things. I don't want to spoil it. But it's certainly worth everyone's time. Uh, talk about underrated. It's called Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. Did you see? Um, I really liked Leap of Faith. It was it was really, really great. And it works great as a companion piece with Friedkin Uncut, which also came out this year. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. That one's not as good. But it's, um, like you said, I mean, we, we got lucky and we saw him. Uh, do a before, Q&A at a screening of Sorcerer. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Like you said, such a great storyteller. And it's just the type of person where no matter what he's talking about, it's immediately fascinating. And you could sit there listening to him for eight hours. My son, Jake, and I will sometimes go back and talk about the fact that we got to see that. And I would like put it in my top 10 screenings of all time, even though when he was done talking, remember he said, I'm going to go to Giordano's now and get pizza, (laughs) and then I'll come back after the movie, because I've seen it. Um, There's a section in Leap of Faith where William Friedkin talks about going to Japan and visiting the Zen Garden, and it's the most fascinating five minutes you'll see this year in film. And then there's a whole other section about grace notes, what he calls grace notes in film. And I thought it was fascinating that the one he chooses to illustrate his point is one that I've always held in my head. And oddly enough, it's mentioned in the film Mank this year. The scene in Citizen Kane, when his associate tells the story about seeing the woman on the boat 
and that he looked at her for less than 60 seconds and it was 40 years ago, but not a week has gone by where he hasn't thought about it. Friedkin brings up that scene to talk about what he calls grace notes in films and it's fascinating and it will spin your head around. I really like the scene where he's going through the beats of the meeting in the kitchen between Lee J. Cobb and Ellen Burstyn and kind yes. of how manipulating the audience into like being afraid and then alleviating the tension. And like when he leaves, you know, like he's got something in the sound design with like a ticking clock to set you more on edge again and things like that. It's just really beautiful to listen to how a director kind of constructs art. It's a masterclass. Um, the other night, I rewatched the De Palma documentary. Yes. And there's sections in the De Palma documentary that are very much like that. Here's a man who is very good at what he does. And when he starts explaining it step by step, it's very compelling and very, very interesting and very wonderful. I always want to rewatch the De Palma documentary, but I always stop myself because I know it's going to send me down the rabbit hole of rewatching every De Palma movie, which isn't a bad thing. Obviously, I would enjoy that very much, but it's like I have too much else to watch. I can't afford to watch every De Palma movie again, uh, so I stop myself from putting the documentary on. It's in heavy rotation this month on Showtime. Um, Friedkin, not Friedkin, not cut. Leap of Faith is on Shudder, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just want to tell people where they can find these movies. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is your number seven, Leap of Faith. Yes. Adam, your number seven. Uh, my number seven is a movie that I only this year would put on my list. Um, it's a movie that... I rationalize it as if people can put five Steve McQueen movies as one spot on their list, I can put one Hallmark movie <laughs> as one spot on my list, and that is Love Lights Hanukkah, a movie that I watched ironically <laughs> for the holiday show, and I've watched five times in three weeks now. Um, I when it didn't make when it when it didn't make your number ten. Adam, I gotta cut you off. That one's higher up on my. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. When it's it didn't make relief. when it didn't make your number ten, I was so worried that it wasn't going to appear. So I'm happy to see it show up at number seven. I had one list where it was at two. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> but I wanted to be invited back. So. <laughs> um, so it's at seven. Um, what can I say? Um, at, at the core of it, it's as a Jewish person, it's really nice to have a movie with Jewish people that's not set in the Orthodox community or about the Holocaust. Right. I think that's like a really big thing. Sure. And um, even if it's, you know, Hallmark still hedging. I can't believe I'm saying Hallmark on the top <laughs> 10 show. So even though it's Hallmark hedging its bets, still having a lot of Christmas stuff in it. I don't care. It's just nice to see like as you said on the holiday show, a conflict-free movie about Judaism. <laughs> um, I like Mia Kirshner and Ben Savage in the movie. Ben Savage is playing it like it's the role he's been waiting for his entire life. They've got a good, easygoing chemistry. Um, it's aggressively pleasant. It's from a planet where there's no COVID. It's from a planet where there's no racism. It's from a planet where there's no political grifts. Um, it's just benevolent escapism 
And I wouldn't have had it on the list if I didn't watch it like every two days. But <laughs> that's where I'm at right now. And uh, I think you can watch it. I, I it, it's on. It was on Hallmark. If you have like cable, I guess it's probably on like an on demand, or maybe it's uh, you can watch it from the Hallmark website. Um, if you can't find it, just let me know. I'll I'll read you the script or something. <laughs> Well, and but, I was uh, going to say, should should Love Lights Hanukkah ever get a disc release, yeah. you will have the blurb, and the blurb will say, what can I say? Adam Risky. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So, I don't know. In the grand tradition of Hellfest, Little Italy, Birth of the Dragon, and Wish Upon, I give you Love Lights Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how quickly he can... He can reel off that list, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Have you oh, discovered? I know, a... I know my kid. I know my kids' names. <laughs> <laughs> Have you discovered like new things to love on each viewing? Yeah, um, I I got my one of my buddies hooked on the movie too, and I was we were going on this weird tangent where like. What this movie needs is like Ben Savage to have a guy friend character. And then it turned into like, what if he was played by Denzel Washington? And then it turned into like a gif of Denzel Washington eating from Philadelphia. And it's like when he tries the whole enchilada. And also it's gotten me watching other Hallmark movies, which for better or worse, I feel like is where I was headed anyway <laughs> Adam, um Adam. so i dvr'd one cross-country christmas with rachel lee cook i'm looking forward to ones with jesse schramm who went to my high school um but now is like a hallmark actress i'm looking forward to ones with jody sweeten i'm i'm uh you know i'm down the rabbit hole as it would be <laughs> adam at the end of your remake of love lights hanukkah that has denzel in it yeah Denzel should turn out to be a ghost. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> yeah. Let me just throw that in there. It's a, it's a, it's a real banger guys. Um, if you are tired of watching, you know, quote unquote, objectively good movies. <laughs> <laughs> Love like Tonica. It's still on my DVR. You can contact me uh, and I can arrange some, Socially distanced DVR viewings of Love Lights Hanukkah. Contact Patrick if you have a sling. Is this what led you to revisit the Crow City of Angels? Because you were looking for more of a Kirshner fix? Yeah. And also, I I just watch the Crow City of Angels a lot, even though I don't like it. (laughs) The soundtrack kind of hooks me. Because I listen to the Crow soundtrack pretty often because I just love grunge alternative music. And then... Once you're on the Crow soundtrack, you go to the Crow City of Angels soundtrack, then you go to the movie, then you go to Love Lights Hanukkah now. That's that's the cycle. Got it. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we all uh, took a ride just now, so that was fun. Oh, it yeah. was a ride. <laughs> and the rest of our list will be um, behind the paywall. So thank you, <laughs> I thought Adam was going to say the rest of our lists will be movies. <laughs> hey, this was a feature. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. If people could have host on their list, which is 60 minutes, I can have Love Light Tonica on mine. <laughs> At least that thing's like 85 minutes. Yeah. Pre-commercials. And uh, perfect. 
<laughs> and also perfect. I I will admit I was concerned when I read the plot synopsis where it's like, oh, this Italian woman discovers that she's Jewish. And I was really afraid it was going to be like a what? Jewish? But it's not. She's excited to discover that she's Jewish and immediately wants to learn more about Judaism and different traditions and stuff. So it's not a like a the Jewish equivalent of a gay panic joke. Which yeah, is what I was and, like sort of worried about. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I can't stress enough like how great it is just to have another Hanukkah movie that's not Eight Crazy Nights. Like I like Eight Crazy Nights, but it's been a long time, guys. It's been like eighteen years since that one. <laughs> Has it and, really? Yeah, and you know, we get like a Hebrew hammer thrown at us every once in a while and we're supposed to be like all thankful that we got like our own shaft movie. And it's like, no, I don't give me a movie with normal people. And Love Light Hanukkah isn't normal people, but it's close enough. <laughs> I just want to point out, since you mentioned Eight Crazy Nights, it's my obligatory duty to mention the fact that Erica cried at Eight Crazy Nights when we saw it. Makes sense to me. <laughs> she was so moved by the cartoon Adam Sandler movie where the reindeer poop that she wept. Uh, my number seven... <laughs> Right? It's my number seven is yes. Birds of Prey, which may be on the list because I think it's the last movie I saw theatrically before we went into lockdown. But I don't think that's the case. I did rewatch it on Blu-ray and found myself still really liking it. Um, it could be, as Adam, you and I have talked about, that I'm starved for good action movies this year. And Birds of Prey is one of the best action movies of the year. Kathy Ann shoots the shit out of the action. It's really, really well done. Um, it's got great performances, particularly by Margot Robbie, Robbie uh, reprising her role as Harley Quinn. Uh, but as Adam, you mentioned in a column that will be out later this week, Mary Elizabeth Winstead steals a lot of her scenes as uh, the character known as the Huntress. She's very sort of slyly funny. Um, but the movie is super colorful, super energetic. Ewan McGregor is having a blast. I like the messages about women working together to destroy an awful man or awful men, plural, really, I guess I should say. Um, it has the added bonus of not including Jared Leto's Joker, which I think is a plus for any movie. Any movie that Jared Leto is not <laughs> in as the Joker may earn it a spot on my list. Um, I just thought it was a ton of fun. Yeah, I revisited the movie uh, last month, and I, I, I liked it more than I did in the theaters, which I thought it was pretty good in the theaters. But yeah, like what you said, it kind of ended up being like the best action movie of the year. Yeah. And it sort of does a good job of kind of maintaining the DC grittiness, but also like bridging it to the lighter fun aspects of Marvel movies. Um, so I appreciate that. And then the action scenes really stood out to me this time. Like the choreography I think was by the John wick people. And it's just, it elevates the movie that much more. And it, is there it, a scene where there's all sorts of shit flying through the air? Um, not like that scene in John Wick three, no. But people okay. throw stuff a lot and shoot arrows, and uh, I don't a... know. I kind of need to see all the shit. Flying <laughs> through the air. <laughs> there's a scene where a lot of cocaine flies through the air, mm -hmm. and it gives Harley Quinn her superpowers. 
<laughs> it's uh it's playing a lot on HBO. It's streaming on HBO Max. Yeah. It's out on VOD and Blu-ray and stuff. So if you haven't yet seen Birds of Prey, uh, because you have disliked other DC movies, including one that came out just weeks ago. Uh, Birds of Prey is the superior comic book movie of the last few years, I would say. I haven't seen Birds of Prey. I'm on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, J-Bones, your number six. My number six film, and one of the last films I got to see in a theater before lockdown, is The Invisible Man. Go for it. Oh, I thought it would be higher up on your lists. Um, obviously, I'm a crazy Universal Monsters fan and have seen various failed attempts to resurrect the monsters at, during different eras. Yeah, and um, the latest uh, un unsuccessful, unfortunate attempt with Tom Cruise with his version of The Mummy. And I went to see Invisible Man and besides just enjoying the hell out of it as a horror film, um, I appreciated the social subtext they added, and I also thought if you're going to reboot the classic Universal monsters, this is the way to do it. Not, not some stupid way of a shared universe and uh, <laughs> uh, what's his name shows up as Doctor Jekyll and it's nonsense and the, your marketing is showing, but actually update <laughs> them for, for the 2000s. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> I thought the film had a lot to say about male behavior. Um, I thought that really fed into its theme of paranoia versus reality. Um, I thought the special effects were kind of amazing. I thought Elizabeth Moss's performance was terrific. And um, it might have been the most satisfying narrative film I saw this year. Yeah, it's really good. I, I missed it in theaters, but was fortunate that uh, Universal put it onto VOD pretty quickly once the pandemic started. Yeah. They offered it for like a premium, you know, it was like 20 bucks to rent it or whatever. But uh, so I was able to catch up with it at home and we made a real thing out of it. It was like we turned the lights out. We put the kids to bed. It was like we're watching The Invisible Man like we go to the movies. I was like uh, one of your nephews, Adam. Um, I had all kinds of rules for how we could watch The Invisible Man. At least and, for the uh, first 20 minutes. Then it became <laughs> Nintendo Switch night. Yep, exactly. But, uh, yeah, it's really good. Elizabeth Moss, obviously, is always very, very good and easy to invest in her plight. Um, and I like that the movie is saying something. And it has the scene in the restaurant is one of the absolute scenes of the year. Yeah. She goes to dinner with her sister. And I won't say any more than that. I got to see it in the theaters, too, and I'd like to go back and revisit it because the day that I – I don't know if you've had this happen, either of you, but, like, have you ever had it happen where you're, like, you're nervous about something, like, at work or just kind of going on outside of the movie and then, like, the movie's so tense that it's just like, oh, this isn't helping right now? <laughs> sure. Yes, I have had that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of my experience with The Invisible Man, and I saw that as the second movie on a double feature with Sonic the Hedgehog, so it was a weird day. <laughs> I saw Sonic show up on some lists, but I haven't seen Sonic. It's cute. Okay. Yeah. It's better than it should be. It's got some good Olive Garden jokes, if that's your thing. Did they take care of that teeth thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, they softened them up. Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I totally agree with you, JB, in terms of how to... Uh, Invisible Man providing a template for 
how they should reboot the Universal Monsters. Yeah. In fact, the the uh, the the lo- the logo or the catchphrase for the new series should be "Monsters take all sorts of different form." Isn't Lee Wanell doing the next one already? I believe so. And is it the I'm... Wolfman with Ryan Gosling? When it was announced, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, but now I don't remember. I don't remember either the director or the property. I thought it was I, Ryan Gosling is doing the Wolfman. I thought it was with Lee Winnell, but I could be conflating two pieces of movie news. I and don't Ryan remember. Gosling is a big horror fan, so that's that's a step in the right direction. How about getting people on board who really like horror films and don't think it's slumming? Mm-hmm. Selfishly, I kind of want them to keep going with rebooting 90s thrillers with the Universal Monsters because this was kind of like an elevated sleeping with the enemy. So if right, they did right. like the sure. Wolfman Pacific Heights, that would be kind of <laughs> neat. Our landlord is a real asshole and a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah redo jade with the bride of frankenstein i don't remember what the fuck jade was about but uh i'm told it was a movie <laughs> william freaking like, yeah, yeah wasn't that like, um, i heard the bride would do anything in bed <laughs> wasn't that the the guy from nypd blue and yeah this was that was his big, big yeah. his big bid for movie Yes. Well, Kiss of Death was his bid. I, I I think Jade was probably no. That was the same year too. So yeah, it was part of it. Oh, he had a big year. Yeah, back yeah. back when he was Flavor of the Month. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam, which Hallmark movie is at number six? <laughs> well, no, it's this one's on Candace Crunchy Cameron. Roll, so. in... <laughs> yeah. Um, no, my number six is uh, Horse Girl. Oh, very nice. Okay. Is that on either of your lists? No. Okay. So Horse Girl um, was like my first movie crush of the year. Like I just was really in the bag for the movie. And it reminded me a lot of like a certain kind of Donnie Darko, May Repulsion type of psychological horror movie. And um, it's got an amazing Alison Brie performance and something that I've never seen her do before. And she had like a big year this year because she was in like three or four other movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's always, you know, great to see. And she co-wrote and produced this one. And I just thought it was such a great character study that got, you know, progressively more weird and creepy. And I liked how it landed where it gave you no answer, but it kind of gave you an answer. And like the out there answer was just as well supported as like the, the more um, logical one. So I appreciated that. And I, I, I didn't see it coming from this director, really. It was Jeff Baina who did a couple movies I didn't really care for with Life After Beth and The Little Hours. But he also, I remember, did Joshi. And that oh, also Joshi. had Alison Brie in it and was pretty dark. It and, barely um, had I, Alison Brie in it. Yeah, yeah, I remember how upset we were when we saw that <laughs> in theaters. But um, yeah, no, I, I, Horse Girl also has that great game where it's just like, man, she's cute. I wonder how long I would stick around. And then there's that moment <laughs> in the movie where she's just like, let's go to the cemetery and dig up dead people. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's when I would bail. And that's <laughs> that like the part in the movie where the guy bails. So I appreciated that. Too. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the scene where she says, 
let's you, you want to go somewhere that oh you're so fun um is terrific it barely didn't make my top 10 list adam i love horse girl because i went into it knowing nothing and for the first half hour you think oh this is your standard descent into madness but that's not what it is at all it's yeah. so good and all the supporting performances i mentioned this last week paul reiser has one scene yeah that's a and good one. it's full of ideas and molly shannon is really good um <laughs> Supporting cast is excellent. It goes places, man. It. I think I mentioned this last week. It reminded me of the movie The Rapture in that you don't think it'll go there, and then it goes. Yeah, and I like how how it um, gets creepier and creepier in increments. And it's, yes. uh, it's very grounded where it's just she decides to do things that are completely illogical, like tear up the floor and the plumbing in her rented apartment <laughs> and, like, but then to like your roommate says it's a rental. Yeah, exactly. And then her roommate comes home and there's just like drapes hanging from the ceilings and like she's running around with like fire in her hand and stuff. And it's just it's burning it, incense. And it's yeah. like this is going to be the story this roommate tells <laughs> yeah. about her roommate from hell. That, exactly. That's this scene. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's really, really good. We talked about it a little bit last week on the underrated show because JB had it as one of his underrated picks. Um, but yeah, I'm with you guys. I, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. And Adam, you and I had been talking about it off and on all year because I kept saying, I don't know if I should watch it. And you kept saying, I don't know if you should watch it. And so I was very happy that it wasn't the movie that I was worried it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had compared it, I think, to Donnie Darko in your uh business awards and i i really like that comparison yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's on netflix right it is yes yeah yes my number six is i'm pretty sure higher on adam's list by process of elimination and that is underwater that is uh yeah one just a little bit higher okay so we'll get to underwater in just a minute but that's my six j bones your number five and am I correct in saying, based on the thesis you proposed at the beginning of the podcast, that that's the first movie on all three of our lists? It might be the mm-hmm. only movie on all three of our lists. I yeah, don't know. Maybe. You never know. No. Uh, number five, my number five, which I think I spoke of last week, but that was last week. I don't remember it. <laughs> um, I went in knowing nothing, and boy, did this film reward my viewing my number five film is first cow all right i'm just waiting to see if it's higher up on your list um it is not 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 the most promising plot line if you've just read uh (laughs) you know a, a summary of it two men go into business making oily cakes with stolen milk from the only cow in town but as I One, mentioned please. last week, uh, <laughs> oily cakes. Um, the performances are amazing. It's another one of those films that shows you just how shitty things were in the pretty recent past and how glad, glad, glad you should be alive now, even with the pandemic, because, my God, getting potable drinking water and taking a shit were dangerous back then. Um 
it's a film that has a lot to say about America. It is a film that has a lot to say about a sort of um, capitalism in its broadest outline. Uh, just compelling from first frame to last. It's so good. And beautiful to look at in mm-hmm. its dark uh, recreation of the past. It really makes the past look inhospitable and cruel. I listened was to... Oh, in, oh, 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 I was just going to ask a real quick question. Was this, I can't remember. Was this in 133 or did... Was yeah. It just, okay, yeah. It was because I remember pressing play and it goes to 133 and I said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did you two not enjoy it? No, I enjoyed I it. it. Yeah. Uh, I, I said, of course, mostly because it was Kelly Reichert and... Um, I listened to a podcast called Screen Drafts, and they recently did uh, a draft of post, I think it was post-92 Westerns. Anything after Unforgiven, I think, was the the benchmark. And First Cow was on the list, and I thought that was really interesting, because I wouldn't immediately see the movie and characterize it as a Western. But it is no, the neither, Pacific Northwest. would I. Yeah. But... But it is also on a trivia note. Um, I believe it contains the final performance from Rene Aubergenois. I believe you are correct. Famous yep. character actor who I hold close to my heart because very early in the history of F this movie, I wrote a column about Brewster McLeod that he read and commented on on the Twitter machine. Yeah. And that warmed my heart. He described my column as fun. i really liked the uh dynamic between the two guys with john magaro who whenever he pops up in a movie i i'm happy he's just a character actor who i like to see and stuff and um orion lee who i'd never seen before in a movie but um i thought that just the the um kind of the day-to-day of like how they went about making them was just fascinating so i really i really like that too it's like the two men to borrow a cliche complete each other each Mm -hmm. one has what the other one's missing right although in the one character we see their downfall um god i love this scene where he talks about how many more cakes they could make if they just took one more cup. Yeah. There's, and the yeah. minute he says that out loud, that's the beginning of their downfall. Right. Yeah. And in 200 years, that's how me and Rob are going to be found. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the most thankless cameo roles of the year is, uh, Ali Shakwat, is that how she says her name? Yeah. From uh... Arrested Development. <laughs> Arrested Development, who uh, is a dog lover in the film. She's got <laughs> a dog. I'm not going to spoil it. Good movie. Um, mm-hmm. Adam, you're number five. I think we already know. Yeah, it's uh, you're number six, Underwater. So and... I'll let you go first. Oh, that's uh, and J Bones. It's your number nine. It's, right? uh, it's my number nine. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, Underwater's great. Underwater is one of the few movies I got to see in a theater. I'm so glad I did because I think it's a movie that is rewarded by the big screen experience, particularly Very when much. you get to those last 15 minutes. Um, it's been popping up on HBO. I just rewatched it again the other night. And it shouldn't have been good. It's this movie that sat on the shelf for two years. It's an aquatic horror movie, and there haven't been a ton of good aquatic horror movies in a long time. It's from a time when it was still acceptable to cast T.J. Miller in a movie. Uh, it got dumped in January, and just everything about it screamed uh, not good. And, then, and yet. Right, and then you go see it, and you're like, whoa, that's really terrific and really special. Um, I love I love the movie. I love the, the themes of the movie. I think... Uh, I love the reveal at the end. I love the scene when they first have to put those suits on and they're mm -hmm. diving down and before the, the pressure hits them. Uh, it's like one of the most suspenseful things. I've seen that scene probably four times now. And every time it makes me nervous, even though I know exactly how it's going to go. It's just really, really excellent filmmaking and a really good cast. Yeah, I, I liked how... I was surprised actually just how economical it was because like it gets going like in minute two yes. and then it's relentlessly paced kind of like aliens almost after that. And it works as a disaster movie and a monster movie because it's got the same, Definitely. you know, like, go, go, go. We got to shut this hatch. Like we got to climb over this stuff. We got to like go make it from point A to point B. And it's just something that I find as an action fan really rewarding. And on a personal note, it plays very specifically, as it turns out, on some of my fears. I had to have an MRI this week, this year, and I thought, oh, MRI, you're you're in the tube for what, ten minutes, and it turned out to be two and a half hours. And I discovered this year that I was intensely claustrophobic. So underwater plays yeah. on those notes incessantly and i think that's why to me specifically the the horror stuff was so scary because mm -hmm. that would be that that would be my worst case scenario to be to be trapped in that situation just the scene where vincent cassell explains like well here's what we're going to do we're going to dive down to the bottom of the ocean and walk <laughs> it's like what yeah. what just, could possibly go wrong with that idea just that is yeah. the premise of a movie is so inspired and then it adds all this stuff on top of all that uh to complicate things obviously i don't think it's a spoiler to say that they're not alone down there it being an aquatic horror movie and all but uh I thought all the horror stuff was really well done. I don't think they overdo it with the special effects. I don't think they overdo it with the violence or the gore. I think everything is just the right amount. Yeah. Yeah. Of and when, when Kristen Stewart meets up with like the boss villain of the movie, so to speak, <laughs> that was like the moment where I was in a, I saw this in the theater too, where I was closest to like not being able to contain myself and just shouting. Yes. <laughs> I think I just laughed that way the way I do when I get excited about something, you know, like uh, like the scene in John Wick when there's shit flying through the air. Like I just I, I giggled the whole way through that thing. And uh, that's kind of what I did when they reveal the big boss. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I love the opening shot, too, where they're just tracking, like, how far down they are in the yeah. water, too. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really, really great. It's just... It's funny too, because like the direct, I looked up who you know made the movie, and it's uh, he made is William Eubank who made the signal, and um, I don't remember the signal real well, but like this just seems like such a confident next step for a filmmaker from something kind of of low indie budget to a movie like this, which looks it it looks like one of those movies that costs like thirty million, but it looks like it costs like a hundred million. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Yeah, it's 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 excellent, and it's been rewarding to hear so many people talk about it. Even you know, if it's just year-end horror lists, I'm glad that it hasn't been forgotten because it came out in January. So I'm happy to see that people are still talking about it. And I I do believe, and maybe I'm wrong, it's the only movie that's going to cross all three of our lists. That's how good it is. I was on a Zoom call the other night with some friends, and they were asking for movie recommendations, and I specifically mentioned underwater because they don't see a lot of films and in the last two days uh, two of them saw it and and conveyed to me that they really really liked it and they really liked the suggestion and they're not action movie or horror fans so that meant a lot um they really 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 enjoyed it yeah the writer is going to come up again <laughs> the, okay. the writer of the script will come up again on uh, on these lists. Uh, we have not heard the last of Brian Duffield. Um, There's two movies on our list that involves people imploding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number five is a, a movie called Minari that unfortunately hasn't gotten a wide release yet, and so not everybody has been able to see it. So I apologize for being the douche who puts it on my list, but it's really good. And I want to bring people's attention to it um, because it's, it's worth seeking out when you are able to, it is about a Korean family that moves to the South and uh, they move to Arkansas in the 1980s to start a farm. The dad is played by Stephen Yun from the walking dead and mayhem fame. And it's just Will Patton is in there, Adam, so you know you're going to want to see it for Will Patton. Uh, It's just a really good movie about family, about marriage, about the pursuit of the American dream and what that means about being an immigrant in this country and uh, learning how things are done, unfortunately. Um, The performance by uh, Yoo Jung-yoon, is one of my favorites of the year. She plays the grandmother who comes to live with them. And she gives an amazing performance. The movie is worth seeing just for her. Uh, It's really beautiful. The score is really gorgeous. Um, The photography is gorgeous. Great performances. Again, a very small story about a family, um, but really, really worth seeking out when you are able. I'm starting to see that pop up on... 10 best list and of course as we discussed uh there's certain films that are difficult for some of us to see at this point like uh nomadland and um news of the world but that should that should be alleviated in the middle of january yeah this unfortunately doesn't come out until i think february i don't know why 
mm-hmm. why they screened it for critics in 2020 if uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire did the same thing last year, that they're counting it as a 2020 movie, but it's not released until the middle of February 2021. Why not just make it a 2021 movie? That their marketing involved award season. Yeah, for sure. Love Lights Hanukkah was day and date, just for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, say what you want. One of the criteria should be that you're able to see it. Yeah. And especially this year... I don't yeah. know what you're holding back. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had um, like last year, the only movie that I didn't get a chance to see before making the top 10 was 1917. And this year it's like, I have a handful, like literally a handful of like major movies that are showing up on top 10 lists and uh, that I can't see. And it's a bummer that these are like these limbo movies that aren't going to count on my list next year. And they're not going to count on my list this year, but yeah, Minari looked really good. I, I, I started hearing about it on podcasts that were doing like Sundance film festival su- summations okay. and it sounded great. Yeah. So I it is. Really, yeah. yeah. I'm excited for you guys to see it. Uh, J bones, your four. My number four film might be considered a documentary, but I don't consider it a documentary. I think Spike Lee took something that was on the stage and turned it into a movie. And the movie version is a very different version than the stage show because I have now seen pieces of the stage show on YouTube and on Saturday Night Live, and they're nothing like Spike Lee's film because Spike Lee went to see this stage show many times and he figured out how to film it. And it's David Byrne's American Utopia. Yeah. Which is my feel-good film of the year. I believe I've watched it five times now. Oh, my gosh. It's your Love Lights Hanukkah. It is my Love Lights Hanukkah. Put that on the box. And um, it is amazing because, of course, David Byrne doesn't do things half-assed. And you just have to look, stop making sense to look at a well-conceived concert film and then what do you know spike lee and david byrne pull it off a second time because the way this show is presented is amazing for all sorts of reasons that you really only start to realize once you've watched it five times um the song selection is amazing the conception that every note you hear will actually be made from the people on stage and there will be no tapes and no backstage musicians. The choreographer is astounding. The choreography is astounding. Um, Towards the end, it gets intensely political and intensely moving. Um, I think that's the climax of the piece and it's very moving. Although my favorite song is toe jam, which is very silly and very amazing. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, I like to. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. No, just I. I it kept I... them speechless, folks. <laughs> this is what happens when we do it over Skype. Everybody, every year we get to do yeah. this in person, but this year we're doing it on Skype. Um, it's uh, no, it's great. It's the concert movie of the year. Uh, go ahead, Adam. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, yeah, I'm looking forward to revisiting it because I think. The first time I saw it, like, I really, really liked it, but I was comparing it to Stop Making Sense just because that's one of my all-time favorite movies. 
And now I can kind of, you know, settle into it and appreciate American Utopia a little bit more for just being what it is. But it was it was really fun. And the music's great. I did find myself more than once wishing that I had seen it live. I think there were certain numbers that I thought, and it's good as a movie. It's not just uh, a filmed stage show, as you point out, JB, that he's figured out a way to make it cinematic, that he's figured out what to show you and when, the way that Jonathan Demme did with Stop Making Sense. But there were certain numbers that I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'd probably be in tears if I was able to see this live. Just his use of the... um the cameras pointing down yeah um was inspired but also the stage show was one of the many that were cut short by the pandemic in that it was still running when the theaters closed and so not only was the run cut short but there were plans to tour it either in theaters or as a concert and david burns says that might happen someday um if my recommendation gets anyone to watch it um about halfway through david byrne talks about a song they're about to do which is everyone's coming to my house and he says that a uh, a children's choir a high school choir had uh asked permission to record it and that byrne was taken by the fact that these high school kids recorded a version that couldn't have been more different than his that theirs was open and inviting and full of love and full of acceptance. And his version was full of suspicion and annoyance because in his version, it was clear that the speaker, that the singer did not want everyone to come to their, to his house. Mm-hmm. And then he makes a joke about it, but here's my point. Um, it's a great story. And if you do sit down and watch the film, please stay through the end credits because during the end credits, they play the high school kids version and you can see exactly what it is he's talking about. And he's right. Um, They don't change the music. They don't change the lyrics. And yet they record a version that's 180 degrees removed from David Burns. It's a it's a really good movie. Spike Lee made two really good movies this year. Um, yes, and it is uh, available on HBO Max. If you are a subscriber to HBO Max, you can see American Utopia, uh, or on my DVR. Or the night premiered, <laughs> I taped it so that I don't have no middleman. I can watch it from now until eternity because I taped it. Nice. Uh, Adam, your number four. Uh, my number four is a movie that uh, kind of snuck up on me on my second viewing, which I thought it had a chance of being in the top ten of my list, but then it dropped out for a period of time, and then it shot all the way up to number four <laughs> after watching it. And it's uh, Sound of Metal, which is uh, on Amazon Prime. And it's uh, is that on either of your lists? It is not, but it would be an honorable mention on mine. Okay. It is not. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so it's a really kind of straightforward, non-histrionic, just kind of solid drama about a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing from being around, you know, elevated 
noise levels for for a long period of time and not taking care of his hearing and putting in earplugs and things like that. And um, it stars Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook as the couple who are in the band together. She's the singer and he's the drummer. And um, it goes through, you know, all of what happens when you lose your hearing unexpectedly. Like, you know, where do you hear? What does it mean for your 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 job what does it mean for your life what does it mean for your relationship um you know what is best for everybody under these this new normal and i found it very investing and kind of um of a piece with 2020 in the sense that it's like there's a lot of reflecting on what's lost and what is the new reality and it makes you think about how fragile everything can be and um it's just kind of a beautiful movie with great kind of raw performances. It sort of reminded me of like the wrestler in terms of its tone where it's just this thorny, but kind of sensitive drama. And it was uh, written and directed by Darius Martyr, who, when I looked at what he, what else he did, um, it kind of made more sense to me. He wrote place beyond the pines from a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I really like that movie too. And um, it features, like maybe the best supporting performance of the year by Paul. Is it racy or racky? Racy, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, yeah. Paul racy. Who's just unbelievable. He's um, the guy who runs the, the, uh, the community for the heart, for the, the people who um, can't, who are deaf and uh, that Riz Ahmed goes to live with. And he's got a, a dog named Louie after Louie Aparicio from the 1959 White Sox. So what else can you want? <laughs> it's the White Sox movie of the year. Um, so it, it, it's just one that really got went straight to my heart even more than Love Light Tonica. So that's why it's three spots. <laughs> Don't forget, Riz Ahmed is in Rogue One. Yes. <laughs> Much, better here. Much better here. Much better in Sound of Metal, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, really moving movie really powerful and you know adam i think we talk about it in our performances column but paul racy and riz Ahmed, their last scene together just wrecks oh. me it's uh yeah. paul racy is so so good in the movie uh so is riz Ahmed. he's he's always good paul racy was an actor i was not familiar with so as far as i knew they just found that guy you know who's really that mm. guy um, his parents are actually deaf, and so that's how he learned American Sign Language, and so uh, he's bringing a lot of that to the performance. But honestly, I watched it just wondering, like, is this guy actually deaf? Is he reading lips? You know, um, really, really, really good stuff. Yep. Um, my number four. I think is going to be higher up on Adam's list based on where we're at and what we've said. Uh, but that no, we're getting to the top three. I know. I know. This is getting pretty intense. Uh, that is spontaneous. Uh, yeah, it's higher. Higher. Okay. So we will come back. We will circle back around to spontaneous, but that's my number four. Jay bones. We're in the top three. Yes. This is where the uh, shit my number gets three real. is a very <laughs> conventional, but I got to say, uh, probably another reflection on a crazy, crazy year. My number three uh, film is the um, Disney version of Hamilton. Um, much like the David Byrne film, I think the filming of the stage play is a different entity than, a, than the stage play. Obviously, Hamilton 
had a leg up because it's a pretty terrific stage play. But I really enjoyed the way they filmed it. I really appreciated the fact that they let it drop on Disney Plus on the 4th of July. Um, it was incredible how many people watched it that weekend. Hmm. And uh, good thing, too, because it's a great show. It's an important show. Um, I don't think was ever as moved by it, even though, Patrick, you and I saw it live. I thought the uh, the filming of it brought certain things to the fore that we couldn't see from our second balcony seats. Um, I know a moment in the show that gets a lot of comment and a lot of discussion really affected me this time, and it's the final moment in the show the character of Eliza does something. I don't want to spoil it, but after you've seen it, uh, you can actually Google what she does because there's quite a bit of critical comment about what that moment means. Um, my number three film is Hamilton. I was worried that because you and I saw it, that it would be kind of a one and done. And when it dropped on, I think, July third yeah i think it was the third um yeah erica's mom really wanted to come over and and watch it and i was like oh, i don't know if i could sit through it again i already saw it once you know but almost immediately i was sucked back in and in the week that followed when my daughter wanted to put it on every day i didn't mind having it on all the time <laughs> and i'm not one of these people that like re-listens to the same musical theater show over and over again. There was one summer where I listened to Jesus Christ Superstar way too many times, but other than that, I'm not a guy who like listens to Broadway shows. But I didn't mind having Hamilton on all the time, and it was really cool to be able to see the original Broadway cast. Yes. Um, not just Lin-Manuel Miranda, but in particular David Diggs as Thomas Jefferson and uh, a few other roles. He plays... Uh, Lafayette and uh, maybe one other role, but he he stole the show the, for me. To see the original King George, they brought him back just for the film. Yeah, um, yeah, really, really powerful, great show, loved it. Yeah, this was my first time seeing it. I never got the the opportunity to see him live, and I was just thankful to be able to see it because I've heard so many th great things about it over the years, and. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. in it also is just incredible. And yes. I'm looking forward to seeing him in One Night in Miami. I, I heard he's really good in that, too. He's um, so good in it. Yeah. And this was the movie where I kind of had this weird thing, which, you know, it's strange because, you know, Disney is our overlords now. But I was <laughs> like you said with Onward, I was just thankful that, like, they put it out there, like that it was available to me to see. Um, and then they ruined that by charging me $30 for Mulan two months later. <laughs> but again, Disney, Disney, um, I, I'm sorry, I can't think of the verb, but Disney dropped a lot of money on this. Yeah. And I'm guessing the decision was, will, will engender tremendous brand loyalty, will engender tremendous warm feelings about our channel um, because I think under any other circumstances Hamilton being released to movie theaters would have been a big hit. It would have brought in a lot of money. Yeah. 
yeah. but they just didn't feel like waiting another two years to drop it. And to make it this nice little 4th of July present was very delightful. And I think made a lot of people say, oh, my Disney Plus subscription is worth something. Yeah, definitely. And they very wisely, I think, got rid of any kind of free trial uh, right before Hamilton dropped. So you had to subscribe to Disney <laughs> in order to see Hamilton, uh, which I'm sure they picked up lots of uh, new subscribers based on just having that, you know. And then there's lots of other stuff on Disney Plus that's worth sticking around But again, around for. strict dollars and cents. If you're just subscribing to Disney Plus, isn't it like eight or nine bucks? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Hamilton was worth eight or nine bucks. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. even if oh, you know, I I don't I don't have a pride. I don't see oh Disney squeezing them. No, I don't see this as a squeeze. I thought the Mulan thing was a bit of a squeeze, but you know what do I know? Yeah. Well, there's always Artemis Fowl, and that was free. <laughs> <laughs> that I think I don't do worst list, but that was the worst movie I saw all year. I am glad that I skipped it. Yeah. It makes Men in Black International look like Love Lights Hanukkah. (laughs) Strong words, Adam. Uh, Adam, your number three. My number three is your number four, Spontaneous. Oh, okay. We got to it pretty quickly. Go ahead. Yeah. um, So I had a reaction different to Spontaneous than I think Brian Duffield intended. (laughs) Maybe. Because in my business awards, I wrote that it was the saddest movie, which I didn't mean as, you know, a, a derogatory remark. I meant it as like it was affecting and it really hit me hard. But he was saying like, oh, I'm so glad that our our comedy made this guy the saddest that he was all year <laughs> watching a movie. But um, I just found it incredibly sad, but really, really moving. And it felt very unintentionally, maybe because it was it certainly had to have been made you know, in 2019, um, very 2020 in terms of its gallows humor and like, how do you react to something so terrible? And I think it really kind of nails what it feels like to be in high school. Um, these, the, the, the two main performances, especially Catherine Langford are just phenomenal. And she's got that kind of performative aspect, but also like that senioritis moment down pat where it's like you feel like because you're 17 years old that you're sort of the star of your own telenovela right (laughs) and um and charlie Plummer is great he's just this sweet kid that she falls for and um yeah i don't know it's something that i i've only seen twice because it's hard to go back to but i i think about it every day in a way that i don't think about the other movies of 2020 it's a movie that made me think about death a lot, which is sort of by design. If you don't know the premise, uh, it's a movie that takes place in a high school where the seniors begin spontaneously exploding. Uh, and it's very bloody when it happens. Um, and they don't know what's causing it. And they're trying to figure out what's causing it. They don't know who will be next. They don't know if they themselves may explode at any minute. And so, Adam, like you said, it really gets the feeling of what it's like to be in high school, to not know what to expect for your future. If you're even going to have a future. Um, Yeah. It, it made me very, very sad and not just for the obvious reasons, but it just got me thinking about my own mortality a lot, how much time I have, how much time any of us have. 
um, but very beautifully done and very funny and entertaining. And, you know, it's not like a morose movie at all, but, uh, it's based on a, like a young adult book, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, this was the other movie that Brian Duffield wrote. He directed this one and he had written underwater. So he did have a big year. Um, wow. yeah, it's a really beautiful movie. Um, and very, you know, based on a book, but very, very original. It didn't feel like anything else I saw this year. Yeah. And I, I like also how it challenges you to, you know, think about what you think matters in your day to day life. You know, does it really matter? And like forcing you to go after any piece of happiness that you can for however long that you can, which is a message that we should remember, especially in 2020. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So that was my number four, your number three. We're at my number three. My number three is possessor. The Brandon Cronenberg movie that I saw a couple months ago and liked, but didn't love and went back to and was kind of knocked out by it in the way that I wish I had been the first time. And maybe I just wasn't in the right mood or maybe I wasn't ready for it. Um, it's a very dark movie, very bleak. Andrea Riseborough stars as a woman who she's essentially an assassin who kind of quantum leaps into the body or what, or, or uh, what's his name? Chris Pine leaps into the bodies of, uh, <laughs> of people to pull off assassinations um, and then leaps back out and she enters the body of Chris Abbott, who is Adam Risky's least favorite actor, newly crowned. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, doesn't have full control over him, basically, is kind of what the movie is about. And so it's about your own autonomy. It's about, you know, there's lots of body horror, obviously, because this is David Cronenberg's son. Um, I saw it as a really interesting movie about a, a sort of raging against domesticity in the way that David... Cronenberg's The Brood is kind of this weird howl against domesticity. Uh, so too is Possessor. Um, some of the most fucked up stuff you'll see in a movie this year. Um, very sort of mind altering imagery, but it's a movie that is not afraid to go for it. It is a movie that is not fucking around at all. And I was so excited on my second viewing about the movie's willingness to take chances, the movie's willingness to push cinema in certain directions. Um, I thought it was pretty thrilling and, and why it didn't connect with me the first time. I don't exactly know, but uh, the second time I saw it, I liked it a whole lot more. And I gotta say, I haven't seen possessor yet, but Andrea Reesborough is so great and consistently flies under the radar. Um, I remember I first saw her in a film called Shadow Dancer, which is not a film I would recommend, but her performance was amazing. And then we get things like Oblivion and Birdman, and I thought she was the best thing in Death of Stalin, a film that I was not a fan of, but I was a fan of her performance. And just recently, she was in Battle of the Sexes, and also, there we go, um, 
that she was very memorable in Mandy. Yeah. So she just keeps giving yeah. these supporting performances. Is she the lead in Possessor? She is, but the nature of the plot is such that she doesn't have a ton of screen time because a lot of her screen time is spent inside the body of Christopher Abbott. Right. Um, but that alone makes me want to see it. You should absolutely see, you it. see it. Make sure you see oh, the uncut it. version. Uh, Ooh, because if you uncut. rent it on Amazon, I believe it is the R-rated cut. And you definitely want to rent it through like Apple TV or buy the uncut Blu-ray or something like that. Because you definitely want to see the uncut version. Have you seen both? I have not, but I'm aware of what was cut. Oh, okay. Thanks, thanks for just, the tip. I do want to yeah. see it. I just saw the cut version and i wonder if that diluted the movie for me a bit because for whatever reason i had heard you know how kind of out there and crazy and tough to watch the uncut version was and then so i had some kind of weird like challenge with the movie when i was watching it where i was just like that wasn't that hard <laughs> yeah. like think, i never like think that when i go into a movie except for this one but i i enjoyed it for the the first time around i think i need to give it another chance yeah, I would encourage you to, just based on my own experience. Um, <laughs> because it was a movie that I had pr heard, you know, people I respect talking about in a way that I was like, well, I don't feel like I had that reaction, and that's what inspired me to give it a second chance. Um, and then had a very different and, reaction and to it. And that's interesting, because the conversation in the last five minutes is making me realize that I have seen and read stuff about Spontaneous and Possessor, I just didn't put it together yet. And now I understand what these things were. These were signs from another planet that these are two <laughs> movies that I'm supposed to see. That regardless of what you first thought when you saw the poster for Spontaneous, it's not that. It's this. Oh, the poster and for Spontaneous is just like two people looking and smiling at the camera. It tells you nothing about the movie. Yes. When I yeah. first saw the poster, I thought it was a teen sex comedy. Yeah. It sure looks like it. It is. It couldn't be further from that. It's so good. Okay. I was tricked by marketing. That's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, My number two. Yeah, your number two. Here we are. And hardly surprising... And Spike Lee had a great year, regardless of the pandemic. My number two film is The Five Bloods. Higher um, on my list. Oh, okay. No problem. <laughs> kind of gives away the ghost there, but that's okay. All right. Um, so speaking of... For a minute. So speaking of ghosts, my number two is Wonder Woman 1989. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> um <laughs> Doug Schultz. <laughs> I had a joke. I couldn't fit it in, but it was. I was gonna go wonder what my number two will be. <laughs> um, so my number two for realsies is Let Him Go, um, which is the best Kevin Costner movie since Draft Day, but not as good as Draft Day. Not um, as good as I, Draft Day. <laughs> well, Draft Day is Draft Day. I mean, come on, come on. True, but True. Let Him Go is incredible. Um, and it reminded me a lot, and I, I didn't see it coming from the director that it was. It's Thomas Bazooka, who um, he uh, uh, wrote and directed this movie, and he was known for The Family Stone, which this couldn't be further from. No. Um, but it's this great, like, 
neo western it's from it's set in the 1950s and early 60s it feels like a great missing 90s clint eastwood movie like from around the unforgiven a perfect world period mm-hmm. um diane lane and kevin costner are 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 a couple who are grandparents and they're trying to rescue their grandson from the most evil family <laughs> on the face of the earth who in prior to maybe 2016 i would say well they're like cartoonishly evil but now i'm just like no there's people like this and um it's incredibly suspenseful there's a centerpiece kind of scene in the middle where kevin costner and diane lane go to leslie manville's house and she's the matriarch of this awful family that also has martin donovan in it and it's just it's like something out of inglorious bastards for like pulling the rubber band of tension until it snaps and it's amazing and it it builds up your kind of primal bloodlust for the third for like you know get this kid we need to get this kid out of there but before that there's there's all this great stuff between costner and lane and they're just a couple where you can tell like they got each other down pat and they they love each other so much and they're very kind of schmoopy in the walk down the street arm in arm, but they also like know just what buttons to push with one another. But at the end of the day, they have one each other, one another's backs. And I want them to just continue working together. They're so good together. And um, yeah, let them go is just, I've, I've watched it twice. It's something I can't wait to own. It's uh it's a great movie. And Adam, this might be a case where the marketing was too good because mm-hmm. I saw the trailer several times and something that really bothers me is violent, stupid people. Yeah. And the trailer was so effective at conveying what they were up against. I doubted if I was up for the journey. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I could handle being plunged into that situation. That's how well the little bit of it that I've seen did to convey what it, what it contained. Yeah, you might have trouble with the movie then because it's more of that. <laughs> so it's ninety minutes of violent, stupid people. No, no, I, it's it's more about suspense than violence. But like, it definitely culminates into you know some action in the third act. And there's stuff before they meet, like the specter of this family kind of haunts the movie before you meet the family. Like the, and, fam- uh, the family is famous in the town, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're they're yeah they're pretty well known. They're um, they kind of rule with an iron fist over over that town and work on their own set of rules and internal logic. <laughs> kind of like Schomburg. Yeah, <laughs> I knew nothing really about the movie except for what I read in Rob's review. I didn't. I had never seen a trailer. I didn't know anything about the movie. I don't even know if I if it was on my radar at all until he reviewed it and. I went into it pretty blind, and if I had an 11th spot, or if I was going to do a tie for 10, this would have been it, because this was very, very close to being on my list. This is the one I had to bump. Um, but I, I'm i with you, Adam. I absolutely loved it. I love Diane Lane in the movie. I love her chemistry with Kevin Costner. There's this great scene where they're walking down the street, and he stops in to buy a little thing of whiskey or something, and she just kind of turns her back, and it says everything about their relationship and their history together. And it's so, so wonderful. And it's this little wordless exchange. Um, It's a great movie. Yeah. And it's one of those movies too, where when you see what they're up against, 
in my head, I'm like, who would I want with me in this situation? And the answer is Kevin Costner, and there he is. Because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't put up with this shit. <laughs> It is. It's structured very much like a Western in terms of how they yeah. build up the family and how there's the showdown at the end. I mean, if you're a Western fan, and I know you are, JB, I think you'll really like it. Yeah, no, I'm writing it down. And like a lot of our listeners, I hope I'm getting some great ideas uh, to get me through the next three days. <laughs> Hopefully you see some stuff that you like. I'll be curious. Uh, make sure you... Uh, touch back with us as you watch these movies. Cause I want to hear your thoughts on these. I will. Um, all right. My number two is a, a movie that I actually saw last year at the Chicago critics film festival, but wasn't released until 2020. And that is St. Francis. Uh, it was my favorite movie out of that particular festival. So it's a bummer that it then took a year to actually be released. And when it was released, it was during a pandemic. And so it mostly got dumped to like music box on demand or VOD release. And not that this movie was ever going to get a big theatrical release, but it is a Chicago shot film uh, directed by Alex Thompson and written by its star, Kelly O'Sullivan, who gives one of my favorite performances of the year. She plays kind of a 34 year old, sort of fuck up who gets hired to nanny for this little girl named Francis who's adorable and a little bit of like a precocious movie kid like says all the right things but not too bad the movie avoids cliche at pretty much every possible turn um it is again a very small movie about people um Characters do things that you don't normally see them do in movies, and certainly not. I, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I, it, I, there was a Q&A after the film when I saw it, and Kelly O'Sullivan said, I wanted my character to do this thing, and I wanted it to not be a big deal. I didn't want the whole movie to be about this. And I so applaud the way that the movie does that when it comes to all kinds of different social issues and relationship issues, there's all these things that the movie could have been real preachy about um, or that it could have focused all its energy on, but it doesn't do any of that stuff. It just is interested in humans and human behavior and the way that we connect with one another or the way that we communicate with one another. Um, Hal Ashby is actually credited at the very end of the movie in the special thanks. And I thought wow. how fitting because this movie owes a lot to the work of Hal Ashby. Um, it's really, really wonderful and really, really special. I know Adam, you saw it and maybe weren't as crazy about it as I was. So I may be overselling it, but I really responded to it. I still remember how high you were on it when you first saw it at the music box. I yeah. still remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. I, yeah. I, um, I appreciated the, the scene that I remember the most that I thought was great was there's a, a moment where somebody's doing something out in public that certain people don't like to see yes. in public. And then there's a confrontation. And this was the first movie that I can remember where Somebody has to build up the courage to have the conversation because they know like, no, this isn't right. I'm going to say something. And in so many movies, it's just this moment of 
complete theatricality and like there's no repercussions and there's no nervousness. But in this one, you feel just as nervous as the character building up the courage to say what she's going to. And then she starts talking and it's like, oh, it's out there. This is happening. And it's got that <laughs> awkward social dynamic. And I, I applaud the movie so much for getting that right. Because it becomes a scene about what happens when people actually talk to one another. Yeah. And there's so many moments. There's a a scene later in like a stairwell at the house of the couple that, that, that Kelly O'Sullivan is nannying for. And you think it's going to be this big confrontation, but again, it just becomes characters opening up about what they're going through. And they suddenly realize like, Oh my gosh, there's so much more to you than I understood. And like, when we actually talk to each other, uh, we learn things about one another and we can, empathize and understand one another in a way that we so rarely do, especially in movies that are mostly about kind of sitcom dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Anyway, St. Francis, you can rent it on VOD. It's great. Which brings us to our number ones. Yeah. And I think by process of elimination, I know everybody's number one. So I'm very excited about this. And um, I have to say, Thank goodness this got released because it was the cherry on top of a Sunday of what I thought was a very good movie year. I have no complaints. I saw lots of great movies, the 10 on my list and also some honorable mentions. But um, as I mentioned last night, as we were idly discussing things, um, I don't think Pixar gets enough credit for raising the bar quite as high as they did. My number one film of the year is soul. Um, I think it is satisfying in every conceivable way. Obviously, I'm biased. I was a teacher for a number of decades, and the film has a lot to say about what it means to be a teacher, but the film has a lot to say about a lot of things, which I appreciate because many films have nothing to say about anything. Um, It is wonderfully entertaining. Um, It has a lot to say about music. It presents music beautifully. Um, Amazing voice performances amazing story. Um, I believe I said it was one of the few movies where at any given point, I had no idea where it was going, including the last 10 minutes. And I later discovered that they actually filmed three different endings, all three of which would have been satisfying, but that there was much debate among the filmmakers of which ones to use. Uh, Soul is the story of a jazz musician who is at a crossroads in his life and has to decide between, uh, continuing to f- to try to find a career performing or uh, to become a teacher, which has job security and health insurance and a pension. And he's sort of pulled in different directions. And then something amazing happens, which I won't spoil. And um, I can't I can't think of a single film that I enjoyed more this year than Soul. There were shots in the movie that made me really wish I had been able to see it in a theater. Yeah. Um, yes. Which isn't always true of animated films. Um, there aren't a ton of Pixar films that I can say like, oh, I'm so glad I saw that on as big a screen as possible. But there was a lot of moments in Soul. Uh, and some of that has to do with the score, which I think we talked about last week by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which I really, really loved. And in Soul... And in Soul, the shots that you're talking about are part and parcel of a theme, and the theme is it's great to be alive. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, there's, I said this when we talked about Onward a little bit, that there's some story stuff in Soul that I didn't respond to as much. And I think, JB, that you're saying you saw it as a positive. And for me, it was a little bit of a detriment in terms of like the movie Ziggs pretty regularly and i was like i don't know if i need this beat but it all lands thematically so well and the message of the movie which i won't necessarily give away is one that i need to hear so much um yes especially as it relates to f this movie and i don't want to get too like into therapy or whatever but like uh it's unfortunate that i came to terms with some of what this movie is talking about right around the same time that I developed horrible writer's block. <laughs> but maybe this is a conversation better for off mic. Um, really a wonderful movie. I think my daughter is rewatching it again right now as we're recording this podcast. She's watched it probably four or five times already. As usual, they are very adept at visualizing things that are not inherently visual um, I keep drawing a comparison to Inside Out, which Pete Doctor also directed, where the goal was to provide a new vocabulary for children to talk about their feelings. And in this film, it's how do you conceive or perceive of something that by its nature cannot be perceived or conceived. Um, it's also very funny and all of the humor springs from ideas and characters, not from cheap story beats or, I don't know, someone farting. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really blown away by the movie, too. I've seen it a couple of times now. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things like Coco did this also where it just culminates into like the most powerful message of any movie that you could ask for and it's beautiful and it got me thinking about you know moments in my life where like the one that i thought of immediately was like when the white Sox won the world series in 2005 i thought i was going to be like the happiest i've ever been because i was waiting 23 years for this but then when it happened i was just like no i i enjoyed the path to this more than the actual moment <laughs> and um there was a lot of stuff along the way. It was, isn't it like a John Lennon quote where it's something like life is what happens. Life on your is way. what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yes, exactly. And that's what this movie felt like kind of as just as a distillation and the animation's incredible. Like New York is so beautifully rendered to the point where like, whenever they went back to the world of souls, I was like, Oh, come on get back to New York. Um, but it's just it, Pixar so good at taking these complex concepts and just making them into movies that have a pulse, which a lot of filmmakers can't do. And I have a I have a friend who's a magician. <laughs> I have a friend who's a m musician <laughs> and a magician who and a he's, he's a bit of a magician. <laughs> and he saw the film and he said he's never seen music portrayed in any film quite this way but he was particularly taken with the animation of the protagonist's fingers on the keyboard which are perfect in terms of what that character is playing and he's not, not used to seeing that much care taken when cartoon characters start playing instruments all right that brings us to adam your number one favorite movie of 2020 
Well, it's appropriate because we just came back from a, a bathroom intermission. So my number one movie is Shithouse. And, I was peeing. Um, peeing. <laughs> I was too. Um, so hear me out because this movie cost $15,000 to make. So I'm guessing a lot of people didn't see Shithouse. Um, Shithouse was a movie that was supposed to debut at the South by Southwest Film Festival Obviously, that got canceled, so I guess they had some kind of virtual screenings, and it won like a grand jury prize for narrative features. So um, it was a movie that came on my radar for two reasons. One is I was keeping up with Music Box Virtual Cinema to see what was playing, and I saw that they were playing this movie at their theater when they were open during the fall. And I don't know if I would have said, what is this movie if it wasn't called Shithouse? Right. <laughs> so... It's kind of a double-edged sword because it's not indicative of what the movie is really at all, but it's something that grabbed my attention enough to watch the trailer and make me watch the movie. So um, what it is, is it's like a before sunrise type of movie set in college. Um, it's incredibly impressive to me because it's the debut feature by, he's either 22 or 23 years old. His name's Cooper Rafe and he, is the lead actor in it. He wrote it. He produced it. He edited the movie. He directed the movie. It's this great walking and talking movie, like kind of a, uh, an up all night movie with between him and the, the woman played by Dylan Galula. Um, Cooper Rafe plays this freshman who's sort of a fish out of water in school and kind of, you know, having a trouble adjusting and Dylan Galula is his RA and they end up spending the night together. And the performances are great. I think it's uh, Cooper Rafe is unusually vulnerable for a male lead of a movie, especially like for the movie where he's the author of it. Like you expect to see Callahan and pool hall junkies like on the <laughs> coolest. And in this one, it's like there's scenes of him just like openly crying and things like that because he's having trouble being away from his family. And I think that the more I was thinking about it, I'm like, I'm so glad that he made this movie with the resources he did and at the age that he did, because it perfectly captures that writing in a diary aspect of your early twenties. And I feel like if he had more people in his ear or more time and distance away from college, it would have, he would have been too embarrassed to put in the movie, what he put in the movie, but that's what makes the movie great. And it's funny and it's romantic and it's sweet and it's a great college movie. I saw it the night that, it was officially official that Biden won the election. So I was just riding high, <laughs> like that and I was drinking and then I went back the next day to watch it. I'm like, did I just like it? Cause I was drinking and the good news was I just loved the movie. I've watched it three or four times since then. It's great. There's um, so many moments, just a funny, like jokes kind of indicating how big of a movie fan he is. Like, I like how there's a scene where he's texting his mom and if you look at the text above, it just says, have you seen the good dinosaur yet? And he just writes, no. <laughs> and I, just think it, I just thought that was funny. And then um, it also perfectly captures an experience that I went through a lot in college, which was you spend the night talking to somebody and then you think like it's going to go somewhere. And then the person never wants to talk to you again the next day. And you're just like, but you were talking to me for hours. What the hell was that all about? And but it gives you both perspectives where it's like you understand from his perspective, what the hell is that all about? But you understand from her perspective, you know, just because I 
talk to you for a few hours doesn't mean I have to be tethered to you for the rest of my life. And um, it, it it's just great. And um, the last five minutes of the movie just kill me. And it's just the greatest. And uh, it's my favorite movie of the year. Movies, you know, have sold us a bill of goods. So especially those of us who enjoy romantic movies where we think like, oh, we've had this conversation with somebody and now things are going to be different mm-hmm. and then they're not, you know, and it's, or, or you're just, you're in that situation where like, I like you a lot more than you like me. And how can I accept that? <laughs> because yeah. I don't want to accept that. Uh, and this movie is good about it's, it's a romantic movie, but it's good also about, I think portraying, the reality of some romance or the bumpy road that it takes to get there or, uh, you know, telling us like, yeah, it's not always like it is in movies, even though this is a movie. Yeah. And it's like the happily ever after in your head isn't the foundation of a relationship. Like there's something that need, there's steps that need to happen. And, you know, it's, it's cool to see that play out in a movie and the scene where he calls home to his mom in tears is one of my favorite scenes in a movie this year yeah yeah good stuff um Mm -hmm. so that's shithouse that's available on vod for those of you who want to check it out my number one has already been teased j bones you had it as your number two it is spike lee's the five bloods um go ahead jb well this film sort of came out of nowhere and uh, obviously didn't get a theatrical release or much of a theatrical release. And it's amazing, um, as most Spike Lee films are, if only for its performances or what it's trying to say or the way it says it or the way it looks. Um, it was the total package. If it had not been for Soul sliding into home the last week of 2020, Um, Obviously, it would have been my favorite film of the year as well. And interestingly enough, I've only seen it once. I haven't revisited it yet because I'm I'm still under its spell. Yeah, I love, you know, a lot of the movies on my list were kind of these small little character dramas. And The Five Bloods is not that. The Five Bloods is big and sprawling and messy and takes a lot of chances and, and pushes things in a lot of interesting directions, even just, you know, the aspect ratio changes and uh, Spike Lee sort of having fun with the form of cinema. It's filled with references to other war movies. It's part Treasure of the Sierra Madre, part Apocalypse Now, part Spike Lee movie. Um, it's, it's an angry movie. No movie I saw this year felt more kind of alive and more 2020 you have Delroy Lindo as sort of this giving the performance of the year I thought yes as this very angry embittered uh veteran who is along with his friends going back to Vietnam to find a friend sort of tragically played by Chadwick Boseman who had not yet passed away at the time that the movie came out right right no yeah. And so now it's this movie about them going to retrieve his body and it's so hard to watch. I, you know, I revisited it a second time and was like, oh my gosh, this is really rough that Chadwick Boseman is playing this part um, to retrieve his body. And while they're there, also retrieve a bunch of gold that they left behind in Vietnam. 
and it's this movie about, you know, capitalism corrupting us and uh, friendship. And it's, it's, it's so full of ideas. And it's, I think, the best Spike Lee movie maybe since Malcolm X for me. I, I would agree with that, although I think even Spike Lee movies that maybe weren't critical or commercial successes, I think in the future people are going to revisit those and see a bunch of undiscovered gems too. Oh, for sure. No, every Spike Lee movie is good and worth seeing, but just in terms of like his masterpieces, I think this is, I think this is one of them. Sure. I'm so glad that he's having this career renaissance of sorts with the five bloods and with American utopia and black Klansmen because for a while, like he was, you know, trying to get Kickstarter money to do like the sweet blood of Jesus and stuff. And it was very experimental and everything, but here it's, you know, Netflix, you know, gave him the resources to make one of his great. And I say this in a nice way. I mean, it as a compliment messy. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I'm paint. He, he's not going to paint the canvas. He's going to paint the museum. Like, right. right. <laughs> and I, there's not enough filmmakers who do that. And I love how his actors, work for him in these movies where it's just if if you would tell me like any of this was scripted i'd be surprised just because it seems so naturalistic with their relationships and their dialogue and um yeah it's a really powerful movie and delroy lindo is incredible in this movie i think and this is well it doesn't matter i'm not gonna go here never mind uh i love the movie (laughs) um (laughs) I love how messy all Spike Lee movies are, you know, and this is I maybe the only we talked about this last week because at the start of 2020, we talked or, or, or rather I read about um, all of the movies that Netflix was producing. And it was we have the new Spike Lee and we have the new David Fincher and we have the new Charlie Kaufman and we have the new Aaron Sorkin. We have the new Ron Howard. And it was like, wow, every all these big filmmakers are working for Netflix and Almost every single one of those movies disappointed me, with the exception of *De Five Bloods*. *De Five Bloods* is a masterpiece and the best movie I saw all year. So it's very rewarding, as you said, Adam, to see Spike Lee kicking so much ass again. Yep, agreed. Um, let's go and recap each of our top tens before we wrap up. JB, you want to count down from ten? Yes. Um... My 10th was Borat, subsequent movie film, delivery of prodigious bribe to American regime, form make benefit, once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. My number nine film was Underwater. My number eight film was Zappa. My number seven film was Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist. My number six film was The Invisible Man. My number five film was First Cow. My number four film was David Byrne's American Utopia. My number three film was Hamilton. My number two film was The Five Bloods. My number one film was Soul. And if I can add some honorable mentions. Absolutely. An American Pickle, Horse Girl, Class Action Park, Bad Education, and Trial of the Chicago 7. Right on. Um, Adam, you're 10, and then any honorable mentions you might have. Okay. Uh, My 10 was Onward. Nine was Soul. Eight was Jasper Mall. Seven was Love Lights Hanukkah. Six was Horse Girl. Five was Underwater. Four, Sound of Metal. Three, Spontaneous. 
two let him go one shit house and honorable mentions were the bgs how can you mend a broken heart mm. the five bloods hamilton happy happy joy joy the ren and stimpy story host the last blockbuster ma rainey's black bottom on the rocks palm springs and the wolf of snow hollow if I could just interject here, I also enjoyed the Bee Gees documentary 100%. It was really, really good about placing things in context. But I did think it was unconscionable that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is not mentioned. They just skipped it. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was odd. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. I have it on my DVR, so I'm going, going to watch it, but... It's directed by Congo's Frank Marshall. Oh, all right. And there's a there's a long there's a, a, a large piece of it that's about disco demolition in Comiskey Park that of course is local history. Yeah, it is. Yep. Uh, my number ten is Miss Juneteenth, number nine, twelve hour shift, number eight, class action park, number seven, birds of prey. And then it has that long title afterwards that I'm not going to get into. Uh, number six, Underwater. Oh, come on. I did boring. <laughs> you did it twice. Number five, Minari. Number four, Spontaneous. Number three, Possessor. Number two, St. Francis. And number one to five, Bloods. Uh, with honorable mentions going to Let Him Go, Sound of Metal, His House, and After Midnight. And that's the year, babies. That's the mm-hmm. year. That's 2020. Uh, thank you guys, as always, for listening. Thanks for another year of F This Movie. Thank both of you for coming on and doing this show and doing all the research that goes into it and watching as many movies as you do so we can do this podcast every year. It's always super, super fun to talk about our favorite movies. Yes. I watched over 100 movies released in 2020 last year. Holy cow. Boy, are my eyes tight. (laughs) (laughs) And I am so look, I'm so looking forward to going back to the theater in 2024. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys all for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.